With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On December 28, 1958, the Baltimore Colts beat the New York Giants 23-17 in overtime to win the NFL championship. The game, played at Yankee Stadium, is commonly called the greatest game ever played and is widely credited with popularizing pro football. The following year, the Colts would beat the Giants again in the 1959 NFL Championship game. In just one decade, attendance had increased from 25,000 people per game to 40,000 per game. At this point, professional football, which was considered a niche sport in 1950, appeared ready to challenge baseball for the title of America's number one game. But all was not perfect with the NFL in 1960. The league's commissioner had just died, and the upstart AFL was about to present the NFL with its biggest long-term threat in the history of the league. Welcome to the debut episode of the definitive history of the NFL, episode 1, 1960, The Foolish Eight. In 1959, there were only 12 NFL franchises in 11 cities. In the East, we had the Giants, the Eagles, the Colts, the Steelers, and the Washington Professional Football Club. In the Midwest, the Bears, the Chicago Cardinals, the Lions, the Packers, the Browns, and out West, the 49ers and the Rams. The Chicago Bears were hammering the Chicago Cardinals every year. And the owners of the Cardinals, the Bidwell family, who still own them today, had had enough. They wanted to move to St. Louis, but they couldn't get the NFL to agree to it. Lamar Hunt, son of H.L. Hunt, possibly the richest man in America at the time, tried to buy the team. Hunt's attempt to purchase the team was rejected by the NFL, and the NFL did not want to expand beyond 12 teams. And so Hunt put together a group to start a new league, alongside a few people, such as Bud Adams for the Oilers, whose family still owns the Tennessee Titans today, Bob Housem for the Broncos, etc., Others in the group included Billy Sullivan of the Boston Patriots, a weirdo broadcaster named Harry Wismer, who took over the New York Titans, the uh, Baron Hilton of the Hilton family for the Los Angeles Chargers, and Ralph Wilson for the Bills, and a group led by Bill Boyer in Minnesota. This group of eight owners called themselves the Foolish Club. As the AFL is finding teams, the NFL starts panicking. So they allow Minnesota, which had tried to become an, N- an AFL team, to move to the NFL and become an expansion team in 1961, the following year. And Dallas was added as well as an expansion team. This would be the Cowboys. They were actually moved up, and they would start in 1960. They also eased the ropes on allowing teams to move, and they let the Chicago Cardinals move to St. Louis, where they would stay until 1988 when they moved to Arizona. 
So Minnesota bails, and now they need an eighth team to start the AFL. They can't have an odd number of teams. So Chargers owner Baron Hilton, who's Paris Hilton's grandfather, wants a West Coast rival in the league, which is primarily East Coast-based. And the league eventually picks the Oakland Raiders, who's owned by a guy named Chet Soda. Uh, little known fact that I didn't really see anywhere in my research, but uh, found it in like an old newspaper article that the Atlanta Falcons were heavily considered to be the eighth team. They were beat out, and they would start a couple years later. Minnesota in the, in, actually, in the NFL. It, they would start in the NFL a couple years later. Correct. Minnesota actually drafts for the 1960 AFL season. They 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 do basically an expansion draft for the entire league, and then they bail. So they have a whole roster, and Oakland takes all of their players. This wasn't the first time that a uh, league had really started up as an NFL rival. In 1926, the AFL. In 1936, the AFL, 1940, the AFL. They're all called the AFL, except the, the most successful of the previous uh, entries, which was the AAFC from uh, 1944 to 1950, famously dominated by, who dominated Chester? The Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns, that's correct. So they pick a commissioner, a guy named Joe Foss, the number one Marine fighter pilot from World War II. He was also the governor of South Dakota. What really got the AFL going and, and got them noted in, in, uh, in, in the sports media was they signed 75% of the NFL's first-round draft choices. They, they got the AFL beat the NFL out for them by offering more money, including, most importantly, Houston getting Heisman Trophy winner Billy Cannon, who was picked number one in the draft by the Rams. Who just died. Was a lo- just passed away, I think, like a month ago, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it took a, a long court uh, case, and uh, the ruling allowed Cannon to play for Houston, which was good for him because the Oilers offered him $100,000. The Rams offered him fifty dollars uh, the, the, the AFL was, uh, was full of uh, a lot of interesting coaches. The L.A. Chargers had Sid Gilman, who I think was Jewish, right? Yeah. Isn't he like a famous Jewish coach? Yeah. Uh, the only coach in both the NFL and College Hall of Fame, and his coaching tree is responsible for 26 out of the 52 Super Bowl wins. The Titans went with a big name in Sammy Baugh. Didn't really work out. The Titans are now the Jets. Uh, the Bills went with Lou Saban, who I had thought was Nick Saban's like grandfather or something, but uh, it's believed that they're second cousins. Uh, Lou Saban, I think it's worth reading all the places that Lou Saban uh, coached because he is really like the itinerant, uh, like jack-of-all-trades coached everywhere. So here's where Lou, Lou Saban was a head coach. Case Tech. Northwestern, Western Illinois, the Boston Patriots, the Buffalo Bills, University of Maryland. Again, this is all head coaching positions. Denver Broncos, Buffalo Bills, the Miami Hurricanes, Army, UCF. Then he goes to high school, Martin County High School, South Fork High School, Georgetown High School, Middle Georgia Heat Wave. I don't know what that is, but they don't have a Wikipedia page. Peru State College. You know what state is Peru State College in? Peru, like the country? It's, but it's not in the actual country. Where is yeah. Peru State College? <laughs> I have no idea. It's in uh, Peru, Nebraska. Tampa Bay Storm of the, I'm not even sure what league, uh, the, I, I, that must be an, AF, uh, an arena team, Milwaukee Mustangs, SUNY Canton, and then he finished at Schoen University, which is in Murfreesboro, North Carolina, in 2002. How old so, was he uh, he, he, in, he was at 80, when, and he, he died a few years after that. But uh, n- not Nick Saban's uh, a son, or not Nick Saban's dad or grandfather, but, but a uh, distant relative. The Chiefs. Going back to the coaches, hit a home run. They picked Hank Stram, probably the least sexy of the of the choices, a college assistant. Probably ended up being the best coach of this bunch. The Oilers picked Lou uh, Rimkus, a very strict coach who uh, threatened to whip his players and was fired after, despite uh, winning the title, spoiler alert, in 1960 after starting slow the next year. The Broncos had Frank Filchok, 
who became in 1939 the first QB ever to throw a 99-yard touchdown pass, but he's best known for being suspended from the NFL for four years because it was a crazy gambling scandal in the 1946 NFL championship. And uh, he was accused of throwing it. It's not totally clear if he threw it, but he was definitely approached by by mob guys to throw it and was suspended for four years. He was unsuspended, but it was too late for him to really get back in the league. Uh, the other two coaches were Buster Ramsey for the Bills. He was the Lions defensive coordinator who's credited with inventing the 4-3 defense and blitzing linebackers. And uh, last but probably least was Eddie Erdelatz of the Raiders who coached the Navy in the entire 1950s. And then uh, he coached, so he coaches the Raiders in 1960. First two games in 1961, the Raiders get outscored 99-0, to and he, and, he, uh, and he quits. Um, it was super, uh, even though they were spending a lot of money on players, it was still super rudimentary back then in terms of uh, travel and, uh, like, technology for uh, actually, like, you know, learning the plays. And so they would watch projected film onto a white sheet, hopefully a clean one. Um, the league was basically made up of bums who couldn't make the NFL for the most part, but some of those players ended up being really good. So Don Maynard, Len Dawson, two All-Famers were two of the cast-offs. There's a great story in Smithsonian Magazine about Charlie Hennigan, who was coaching a Louisiana high school team and teaching biology when the Oilers offered him a tryout. He had never had a shot in the NFL. He played a tiny Northwestern State College in Louisiana. He signed with the Oilers in 1960 for a $250 bonus and a $7,500 salary. I was so happy, says Hennigan, I was going to be making as much as the principal at his school. He kept a pay stub from his $270 a month teaching job in his helmet as a reminder of what he'd go back to if he failed. He didn't. Hennigan may be the most prolific receiver not in the, in the Hall of Fame. In 1961, he would set a single-season single record for reception yards that stood for 45 years. In 1964, he would become the second receiver to catch more than 100 passes in a season with 101, a record that would last almost 40 years. Uh, a late cut from the Denver Broncos training camp, Charlie Mann, you know, tries to give us an idea of what uh, the AFL in the in the beginning days were like. He said they would have auto mechanics, farmers, stock clerks, and high school football coaches, of which McMahon was one, <laughs> and Hollywood stuntmen. They would tr- they would basically come out of the woodwork and try and get a chance to play pro football when where they had not been able to play in the NFL. Some were cut, and others fled in the night, and then another batch would be brought in the next morning. George Blanda points out there's only 12 NFL teams with 33 players per team. So when the AFL began, even though a lot of the guys on the roster, especially the back end, were bums, there were a lot of good players out there compared to maybe nowadays where you'd have 32 times 53. Some of the teams played at major American stadiums, like the Chargers played at the LA Coliseum, because they were the LA Chargers in 1960 before they would move to San Diego in 1961, and the Dallas Texans played the Cotton Bowl, but then there were teams like the Boston Patriots that played at Boston University's Nickerson Field. By the way, just an editorial comment here. (laughs) Charlie yeah. Hennigan was good, but to me, the best receiver not in the Hall of Fame is a wide receiver from that very same era in the AFL prominently who played for your New York Titans and then the Oakland Raiders, and that's Art Powell. Yeah, there are, there are a bunch of guys who are not in the Hall of Fame from that era. I think the argument against them was like a lot of these guys really did flop out of the NFL. So it's sort of, and, and the AFL was such a passing centric, centric league yeah. that, you know, that it's sort of course fieldish stats. But yeah, no, Art Powell was great. A bunch of there's a there's a website like rememberthaafl.com, which uh, they, they they like advocate for like sixty different guys to be named to the NFL Hall of Fame. So the AFL has a lot of innovations that you know they really were much more progressive as a league than the NFL in the early going. 
Uh, so two-point conversions, the first among all the pro leagues to have those. Player names on the back of the jerseys, which if you watch old NFL footage doesn't exist. ABC would televise the games with multiple cameras. CBS was just one fit boring 50-yard uh, 50 yard line like camera so if you watch the old like 1950s games with the Colts or the Browns they are pretty unwatchable but once you get to the a- AFL games they're actually semi watchable uh, the scoreboard clock would keep officials as opposed to the uh, ref keeping the the time on the field the scoreboard clock would keep the time uh, soccer still has not <laughs> innovated to uh, have someone who's uh, you know policing 22 people not be the, the timekeeper uh, and they were also more progressive towards integration i think every team is immediately integrated whereas a team like the washington pro football team who would have known that they were racist back then uh still did not have a black player in 1960 or 61 until 1962 they had no african-american players uh attendance even though the league start was buzzworthy early on was not nearly in the nfl on the nfl's planet the raiders were under 10,000 uh fans a game and they were really ba- basically about to go under and ralph wilson i think was like notoriously cheap but maybe uh back then was was a little bit more uh, uh, friendly, uh, gave gave the Raiders like a really large loan so they could continue so the league didn't have an odd number of teams. And the other innovation, the AFL went straight to 14 games so every team could play each other twice, whereas the NFL was stuck at 12, which is kind of too, too few and short-sighted and not enough money hosting only six home games. But the NFL immediately, like a lot of progressive organizations, forcing like the old guard to change their tune. They, go, they immediately go to 14 games in 1961. Yeah. One of the stupid things about the AFL is with everybody playing everybody twice, there was effectively no divisions. And yet they still did have two divisions officially, and the winners of each division played each other in the championship, which means you could have had this idiotic circumstance, fortunately we did not, where uh, the two teams with the best record would have been in the same division, and and one of them would not have played in the championship. Now, again, that did not happen, but it was... Right, there was no reason for divisions if if there's a balanced schedule. Although, I mean, some of the college football... uh, you know, I guess nobody's really playing everybody twice in any of the college football leagues that have divisions. But yeah, yeah I even, agree. And they it, don't even play everybody once anymore. The leagues that have divisions. You know, they yeah, they can't play everybody once because there's not enough games. All right, let's let's get to on the field. Okay. So yeah, as as you said, the AFL was instantly a much more vertical game than the NFL. Uh, comparing the stats in 1960 to both leagues, uh, there was only one player in the NFL that year with 900 uh, receiving yards, and only two players who had more than 52 catches. But in the AFL, there were lots of guys who were putting up numbers that would even make a Pro Bowl today. Lionel Taylor, for example, on Denver, put up 92 catches for 1,235 yards and 12 touchdowns. Bill Groman had 72, 1,473 yards and 12 touchdowns for Houston. And uh, the Jets, uh, the Titans, soon to be the Jets tandem of Don Maynard and Art Powell, the aforementioned Art Powell, combined for 141 catches, 2,432 yards and 20 touchdowns. The Jets would not have a pair of wide receivers to top those figures until 2015, when Brandon Marshall and Eric Decker uh, would combine for uh, uh, more uh, catches, yards, and touchdowns. Uh, but nevertheless, despite the vertical game, uh, QB stats were actually bad. No quarterback in the AFL had a quarterback ranking of even 72. And, and those that uh, were good had been uh, cast-offs in the NFL. George Blanda, for example, had been the Bears kicker and backup quarterback throughout the 1950s. Desiring to play QB but limited by George Hallis to kicking, Blanda angrily retired from the Bears in 1958. When the AFL formed, he quickly joined the Oilers as both quarterback and kicker. And although he was derided by the sports media as an NFL reject, he would lead the Oilers to the first two AFL titles. In 1961, he would be the league MVP, leading the league in yards and touchdowns with 36. 36 touchdowns in a season, a number that would not be matched by any quarterback in the AFL or NFL until Dan Marino in 1984. The following year, Planned would throw an even more impressive 42 interceptions. 
42 interceptions in a season. I would argue that that number is less likely to be broken than the post-World uh, War I record of 31 wins in a season for a uh, baseball pitcher. Kevin, what would have to happen for a quarterback to get 42 interceptions in a season today? I mean, we. I my first of all, in terms of thirty-one wins, I have a baseball team worth it. We have a pitcher who gives up zero runs every start, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and has, has like four, four wins, wins on the season. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I I think like forty-two interceptions. I, what if a guy had like there was just no backup, and a guy had like fifty touchdowns and forty-two picks? I think Eli Manning could, in theory, have like thirty-seven interceptions in a season. But how would he not get benched? That's the crazy part. I I mean, let's say his backup was Geno Smith. <laughs> Yeah, so while those receivers were putting up monster numbers, uh, running backs were not. Uh, Abner Haynes led the league in rushing with 875 yards and nine touchdowns. He was also fifth in receptions, first in all-purpose yards, and second to Groman in yards from scrimmage. By the way, that means that a a wide receiver led the league in yards from scrimmage. That's crazy. Uh, Julio Jones did it in 2015. The last Mm -hmm. time before that the receiver led the NFL in yards from scrimmage was 1952. But in the AFL, it was quite common. Bill Groman in 1960, Charlie Hennigan in 61 and 64, Lance Allworth in 65 and 68, Warren Wells in 69, which really shows how different of a game the AFL was. Uh, Groman also led the league in approximate value, the football version of war, just ahead of the QBs, Al Doro for your uh, Titans, uh, uh, future Senator uh, Jack Kemp and vice presidential candidate, and three defensive players, which were uh, the DB Mark Johnson, Johnston for Houston. He went undrafted in the NFL, only being all pro in his rookie season in the AFL. And Dallas teammates, defensive end Mel, Blount, Mel Branch, excuse me, and middle linebacker Cheryl Hedrick who once broke his neck in a game and refused to come out, earning the nickname Psycho. Hockey players would never do that. Yeah. With those players leading the league in approximate value, uh, who's the MVP? So I would say that Errol Doro for the, for the Titan Jets was probably the best quarterback in the league. He had a league-leading 26 passing touchdowns, a 76 Chester quarterback ranking, and his touchdown-to-turnover ratio of 33-31 to 31 was not bad at the time. Again, this was an era when there were more interceptions than touchdowns. Jack Kemp led, went 9-3 and three and led the league in completion percentage and total yards and was second in touchdowns in Chester quarterback ranking. But he and Dora were also number two and number three in turnovers. So I'm going to give the award to Bill Groman, the best receiver for the championship team. He led the league in approximate value. And although a wide receiver MVP is rare, I certainly think that he uh, deserved it that year. Uh, to be fair, though, of course, we don't really have any defensive stats other than interceptions. So it's hard to know how, you know, how good any specific defensive player was. So Dallas, and remember, we're not talking about the Cowboys. We're talking about the Dallas Texans, who uh, would move uh, one year later, was actually the best team in the AFL that initial season. They started the season 2-4 and with their losses by 1 point, 2 point, and 1 point. After three straight blowouts got them above 500, they lost their last two games in November on the road at Boston and then New York on Thanksgiving, dropping them back below 500. Needing to win out to have a chance, they did, with an incredible run that saw them outscore their opponents 82-7. to which included a 24 to nothing shutout of the eventual champion Oilers. But it was too little too late because the Chargers, who started the season 2-3, and three, won 8 of their last 9, avoiding the close losses that hurt the Dallas Texans. They beat Dallas by 1, Houston by 3, Denver by 4. Uh, their four losses were by an average of 23 points, so when they lost, they'd get blown out. That included uh, a home-and-home with the Raiders, uh, which they swept, moving them from 6-4 and four to 8-4, and four, and which eliminated the Raiders, who fell from 5-5 five and five to 5-7. Five and seven. The worst team, meanwhile, in the West was Denver, who started 4-2 and two and then never won another game. In the East, Houston had no competition, and they clinched the division in Week 12. They went 10-4, and four, and they probably could have been better. Other than the 24 shutout at the hands of Dallas, which was the week after they had clinched, their three losses were by a combined five points. The rubber, the rubber match between Houston and L.A. came in the AFL Championship on New Year's Day. Just like the NFL Championship, which we'll get to a little bit later, the losing team would score two early field goals to take a 6-0 lead, only for the ultimate winner to score 10 straight in the second half, in the second quarter. 
In an otherwise quiet game, my league MVP, Bill Groman, would pull what would prove to be the winning touchdown in the third quarter to take a 17-9 lead. The Chargers scored late in the third to pull within one, but Billy Cannon, that rookie we talked about, would have an 88-yard touchdown catch and run in the fourth quarter to clinch the Oilers' victory in the inaugural AFL championship. All right, so they so the Oilers win the championship, and Bud Adams, being probably one of the stingier owners in uh, league history, decides not to have a ring made for the players after their first championship season. So instead, according to Dr. Steve Hennigan, who's Charlie's son, he gave them championship fobs. Now, I don't really know what a fob is, but I know I should know what a fob is. So I shouldn't have said that. What's a fob? <laughs> I have no idea. Well, I think we should both know what fobs were. Anyway, we don't know what fobs are. TB, <laughs> to be determined what, fo- what a fob is. Uh, hashtag what's, tell us what a fob is. Um, so several years later, he's, uh, he was so embarrassed, he ends up giving rings to the 1960 players. Hangstrom's son, Dale, who was good friends with Billy Cannon, says that Cannon and Adams, who hated each other, uh, so when Bud Adams tried to give a ring to Billy Cannon, he said, no way, I'm not taking it, and he sent it to the Pro Football of Fame, and it's still there today if you want to go see it. So that's the AFL 1960, but let's talk about the, uh, the, the senior circuit for a second. So... In 1959, during the season, Commissioner Peepel goes to a game uh, and gets sick and ba- basically like leaves the game, goes to the hospital, and dies. So now the league has no commissioner. And in January 1960, they realize, like, all right, we need a commission. We have this rival league that's, that's, that you know, is trying to take us on. Like, we really need to be in good hands. This ends up being the most pivotal, uh, you know, sort of one of the more pivotal moments in the history of the league. Uh, you know, if they made the wrong choice here, the league could have just lost to the AFL, but they end up uh, hiring, you know, I, I think inarguably probably the best commission in league history. So how do they how do they pick Roselle? It's a wild story. So January 20th, 1960, they meet and there's 12 owners. Each owner has a vote in order for the new commissioner to win. They need eight votes out of 12. They need a two thirds majority. The problem is the Bears owner, George Hallis, is basically not voting because his big issue is not he doesn't care who the commissioner is. He wants expansion and he doesn't want to, for whatever reason, upset any of the owners. So he decides, like, I'm going to be Switzerland. I'm going to I'm I'm going to sit out almost every vote, which means you need an eight to three majority. So because there are two rival factions, this gets really ugly. So first. The, the interim commissioner, who the NFL has had very bad luck hiring interim commissioners or, or basically de facto deputy commissioners as commissioners, because that's what Roger Goodell is. Um, but Austin Gunzel is, the name, is uh, sort of the favorite, and he's the interim commissioner. They put up him, and there needs to be a second guy in the ballot. So uh, the Niners, like uh, attorney Marshall Leahy, ends up beating him 7-5. So they realize, okay, our guy is, is going to be problematic. He's not going to be able to win. So now they, they bring up the Colts GM. Colts GM... Uh, Don Kellett versus the Niners guy, Marshall A, and now it's 7-4. They keep doing this again and again. 8-3, 7-4. There's there's a a group of Art Rooney, who's the Steelers owner, and George Preston, Frank McNamee, and Cal Rosenblum, who's the Colts owner, who big issue is they don't want the league offices to move to San Francisco, which, uh, which, of course, they end up moving to New York. And Hallis is still abstaining. They vote about... 30 more times, they bring up a zillion guys. Uh, this guy, Sam Harris, who is who is the GM. Uh, the, the former executive of the Chicago Cardinals, Ray Benningson. A bunch of million more guys you've never heard of. The baseball commissioner, Happy Chandler, gets mentioned. The Detroit Pistons commi- uh, general manager gets mentioned. Random lawyers. I mean, you could have been commissioned if you were back then. None of these guys are able to win a vote. Day two, day three, they, still ca- they just keep voting and cannot have an 8-3 vote. 
they go back to the original votes of like Leahy and Kellett. Still, nobody wins. Then they go back to Gunsel. Nobody wins. Finally, Wellington Mara, the Giants owner, and Paul Brown realize that their candidate will never win. And they say, okay, the GM of the Rams, Pete Rozelle, you, he was sort of the peacemaker in the room to try and keep it calm. Why don't you join the ballot? And he, gets eight, he wins right away 8-3 to three on, I believe, the 23rd or 24th vote on day four of this never-ending election. Uh, and the white smoke comes out. Roselle is, is, is the commish, and he's going to move the league office from Philly to New York City. Do you want to guess how much Roselle's contract in 1960 was to be the commissioner? $25,000. Uh, not a bad guess. It was 50000 and they realized right away he's good. They bumped him up to sixty with a $10,000 bonus. So Pete Roselle, now entering the 1960 season, is the young commissioner of the NFL. The NFL, unlike the AFL, which was sort of hiring retreads and, and mediocre college coaches, listen to the ridiculous lineup of NFL coaches just in the West. I'll only go through the West because there's, there's 12 teams. Let's just do the – or there's 13 teams now because the Dallas Cowboys are starting. Uh, here are the six NFL West coaches. Vince Lombardi, five titles, two Super Bowls. George Hallis, six titles. Tom Landry, the Cowboys are now an expansion team, but they would one day make 12 straight NFL-slash-NFC title games, and he also won two Super Bowls. The Colts coach was Weeb Eubank, who won, I think, inarguably, probably, the two most significant games in NFL history, the aforementioned 58 championship, and then the January 12, 1961 uh, Super Bowl three for the Jets. Uh, then the lesser-known coaches, the George Wilson of the Lions, best coach in Lions history because he won the 57 title with them, still the Lions' most recent championship. Where are the Lions on your uh, sad franchise ranking right now? Because that is kind of pathetic. 1957, there's 12 teams. They couldn't have stolen a title back then. Yeah, it's pretty pathetic. Uh, then Red Hickey, not very well known, but the Niners coach invented the oh, shotgun offense. The Lions, are, the Lions are number six yeah. right now. And who are the top five? Indians, Vikings, Bills. Uh, sorry, this, this, the Eagles got themselves off the list. They won the Super Bowl. So the Lions yeah. are up to number five. Up to Indians, number Indians, Vikings, Bills, Jazz. And the Indians could knock themselves off this year, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, Red so Red Hickey invents a shotgun offense, and he's like the least impressive coach in, of this entire group. And then uh, the Rams coach was Bob Waterfield, who is not really well known for being a coach, but was the 1945 NFL MVP. Is a, is a, he's in the Hall of Fame, right? I think he's a Hall yeah, of Fame. We had a big argument about him in our quarterback rankings. I think yes, we did have a big fight about him. Yeah. Uh, well, also, I was really disrespectful to the guys from the 1940s. Anyway, he was a bad coach, and he later became a rancher, and he's now long since dead. The only really notable coach in the NFL East was Paul Brown, who won seven titles with the Browns, which in hindsight seems impossible. Yeah. All right, now let's get to some of the stats that year in the NFL. While we said the AFL was uh, throwing the ball up and down the field, the NFL was much more divided. You had the Packers, who led the league with 29 rushing touchdowns. No other team had even 20. The Lions, meanwhile, as a team, threw six touchdown passes as a team. The Browns' defense caught as many touchdown passes. They had six pick sixes as the Lions' offense. And, um, the, um, and by the way, the Browns, in addition to those six pick sixes, they only threw five picks total. So the Browns were a really, really good team. We'll get to that. Uh, the rest of the league averaged 23 interceptions. Uh, uh, so only throwing five the whole season, as the Browns did, was really, really good. Uh, the Lions' six touchdowns on the season could have been worse. Jim Nanowski, their starting quarterback for the first 10 games of the season. You want to hear his touchdown-interception ratio? Two yeah. to 18. That's Not bad. great, Bob. Yeah. In their ninth game, they actually beat the Packers, who would end up winning the division. Facing elimination in the tenth game, losing badly in the fourth quarter to the reigning two-time champion Colts in Baltimore, they benched Janowski mm -hmm. for Earl Moore. What do you think would happen if we brought, like, Nathan Peterman from 2018 <laughs> into the 19th? Like, would he be good then? Like, would he yeah. have just thrown 30 he would, touchdown he would, passes? He would, he would destroy the league, for sure. Okay. Human evolution. Uh, Earl Morrill, who once had a run-in with uh, your grandfather. 
I think I think my wife's grandfather. Yeah, uh, your wife's grandfather. He comes in off the bench to replace Thanowski. Earl Morrill, what a weird career, always coming off the bench. He promptly throws as many touchdown passes in that quarter as Thanowski had thrown in the entire season, sparking a crazy comeback. The Lions come back, win the game. They're five and five, and now only one game behind the Colts and the Packers atop the division. This Lions team, by the way, despite that two to eighteen ratio of uh, touchdowns and interceptions from their quarterback, they were five and five. Because they had a defense full of the legends. Alex Karras, Yale Larry, who was also a great punter. Joe Schmidt, Dick Knight, Train Lane. They finished the season on a four-game winning streak with Morrill leading them to wins in their last two games by a combined score of 59-14. to And I would argue that if they had be- benched Anowski earlier, they probably would have been in the championship instead of the Packers. Now, let's get to that division. Now, as I said, the West uh, featured the Baltimore Colts, who had won the previous two championships and were seeking the first three-peat in the NFL since the 1929-31 Packers. Of course, the Browns won five in a row between the AFC and the NFL in the late 40s. Of course. The, uh, Johnny Unitas was considered the best quarterback since Otto Graham had retired. They had Hall of Famers up and down the lineup. They started the season 6-2 and two on, a, on a clear collision course with the East winner, which we'll get to in a second. They're coming out of their bye with a two-game homestand in which they can clinch the division. In Week 10, they blow a fourth-quarter lead to the 49ers, despite Johnny Unitas having 356 yards and three touchdowns. But he had five interceptions. The next week, they blew a fourth quarter again, thanks to Ormoral's crazy comeback for the Lions that we just mentioned. Unitas had another monster game with 357 yards and two touchdowns, but again, three picks. Suddenly facing a must-win, the Colts get humiliated the next week in Los Angeles, 10-3. The offense uh, did not show up. The defense, obviously, was pretty good. They only gave 10 points. And finally, in the last game of the season, they complete their four-game collapse, getting blown up by the 49ers. Unitas throws three more picks. In total, over the final four games of the season, he had 12 interceptions, and uh, the, the, the three-peat is not to be. Meanwhile, the Browns, the best team in the league, best offense by a mile, best defense in the division, best advanced stats. They go 8-3-1 in the East, but that puts them a game and a half behind the Eagles, and there's no playoffs back then. The two division leaders meet for the title, and so uh, the Browns are not even going to make the playoffs. The Packers squeak by in the mediocre West with the collapse of the Colts, but they were probably much worse uh, than the Browns and also the Eagles. Bart Starr on the season. Hall of Famer Bart Starr, four touchdowns, eight interceptions. Wow, he's like the yeah. Joe Namath of his day. Yeah. Well, look, no, he he just he didn't have to throw much because he had two Hall of Fame running backs, Jim Taylor and Paul Horning. But still, those numbers are not great. The Browns, as I said, best shouldn't his two Hall of Fame running backs like help him have like that's not an excuse for him to have four touchdown passes and eight interceptions. Yeah, but I guess maybe well, they just well, never eight, throw eight threw interceptions. Inside the 10. Is, yeah, when the league is averaging twenty three interceptions per team, eight is pretty good. Yeah, and he, he only had four touchdowns much. because they ran it twenty nine times for touchdowns. As we yeah. said, no other team had even twenty. Uh, the Browns were led, as I said, by the best player in the game, Jim Brown, led the league in rushing. He had more rushing yards than the champion uh, Eagles would have as a team. In fact, I would argue the Browns had the two best running backs in the league because alongside Brown was Bobby Mitchell, who finished uh, sixth in, in receptions, 11th in rushing, and fifth in yards from scrimmage, and he and Brown both had 11 touchdowns. What's crazy is that, remember the Redskins, Bobby Mitchell was also like Mr. All-Purpose. Like he was more yeah. of a kick returner, but he was also a backup running back. Yeah. So, hey, should I, should do a, I should do a Bobby Mitchell ranking one time. Yeah. You really should. So while the uh, Dallas Texans are running away with the first championship in the AFL, in the NFL... The Dallas Cowboys, who shared the Cotton Bowl with them, were the worst team in the league. They went 0-11-1. In professional football history, to that point, the only teams that had gone uh, winless in a season in which they played at least eight games were the 1925 Columbus Tigers. Big fan of the Tigers. <laughs> who went 0-9. Uh, that year, by the way, there were five teams in the NFL who did not win a game, but the others played fewer games. It was, it was an unbalanced schedule. For example, the uh, Duluth Kellys that year went 0-3. <laughs> it's like Alabama never played anybody, but yeah. like literally teams just couldn't. Yeah. couldn't the Duluth, you know, Ke- the Duluth Kellys games. went zero and three. The Frankfurt Yellow Jackets played twenty games. 
So yeah, I don't know who. That's, who uh, I mean, you see that sometimes. In, if Alex Chester was in charge that. of the schedule that year, it would not have been that unbalanced. I can promise you that. Uh, the 1944 Brooklyn Tigers uh, were another team uh, to uh, go over the season. They were so bad they would be folded out of existence after that season. Um, you know what's weird though? The Brooklyn Tigers. They were called the Brooklyn Dodgers, uh, matching the baseball team the same way that the Giants and other teams did. And then they were called the Dodgers forever. They switched to the Tigers for one year. They go 0 and 11, and then they fold. So uh, very, very. Uh, I guess the Tigers was bad luck. Uh, which makes sense because Tigers are from Detroit, where the Detroit Lions, who of course went 0 and 16 in 2008, they went 0 and 11 in 1942, and the final team was the Chicago Cardinals, who went 0 and 10 in 1943. And then the next year, the Cardinals actually would combine with the Steelers. It was World War II, so there was limited bodies. A super the, team. Yes, and the Chicago Cardinals, Pittsburgh Steelers super team would combine to go 0 and 10. So um, those were the only teams to uh, through that point in history to have a winless season. So the Cowboys were very very bad. Uh, Eddie LeBaron led the league with 25 interceptions. Not good. Uh, meanwhile, uh, let's get back to the uh, Colts for a second with Johnny Unitas. He would throw the ball to Raymond Barry, who was more dominant at receiver than Brown was at running back. He had 74 catches, and we said, you know, in the AFL, that might not have been that amazing. But in the NFL, nobody else had more than 52. He had 1,300 yards. No one else even had 900. So um, Raymond Barry has 74 and 1,300. Second in the league in both catches and yards was Sonny Randall, who had 62 and 893. Um, although Sonny Randall did have 15 touchdowns. Uh, Paul Horning, as we said, had 15 touchdowns rushing for the Packers. He was also the best kicker in the league. He did not miss an extra point. Uh, he was only uh, one of two kickers not to miss an extra point all year. He was also second in the league in field goals. So uh, Paul Horning, uh, kicker, running back, uh, Hall of Famer. John David Crow was the David Johnson of 1960. His name was David. He played for the Cardinals. He led the league in yards from scrimmage, and nobody cared except for fantasy owners. How many people played did you also Did he also miss the year? No, literally zero. Did he miss the year in 1961 like David Johnson, just horrifying all of his fantasy owners? Yeah, well, I every single one of there was not a single person who owned him in fantasy who was not uh, disappointed in 1961. We'll leave it at that. That's true. Um, so the Philadelphia Eagles, as we said, would uh, win the title that year, but they get killed by the Browns in week one. They barely beat the garbage expansion Cowboys in week two. They win their next four games by two points, four points, two points. So, uh, you know, they're getting very lucky, but all of a sudden they keep winning. They end up nine and one. They clinch the division. The Browns, who we said are the much better team, but the Browns uh, go 5-3-1 and one, uh, at that point. And so the uh, Eagles actually clinch the division. And uh, what's interesting to me is that the Eagles and Browns both lost that season for the Eagles, the only loss on the year in Pittsburgh. And the reason I say that's interesting is because although now we see Pittsburgh as being a great team, for the first 50 years of the NFL's existence, the Pittsburgh Steelers were what the Cleveland Browns are today. They were far and away the worst franchise in the, in the league. And that year, their only two wins were, um, were against those two great teams, against the Eagles and the Browns, until late in the season. It's the funny because the Steelers had the same o- the same owner family then as they do now. Yeah, well, it's it funny took that them they 50 like, went from good to bad. To, I guess the real is if you never fire your coach, you become a good organization. Eventually, yeah. The Giants started that season five one and one, but their season would fall apart in late November, including a tie to the otherwise uh, perfectly whatever the opposite of undefeated is Cowboys. Washington had a very strange season. They beat Dallas in week two, and then they had consecutive ties, which means through four weeks they were one one and two. That's yeah, like a hockey record back yeah. in the day. Uh, and then they lost every one of the remaining games. <laughs> so what was their final record? One, uh, one nine one, and two? One, nine and two. That's correct. That's, yeah, a, that's a really ugly record. Yeah. Now, the Bears, that's another team with a really weird season. They split quarterback duty between Ed Brown and Zeke Bratkowski. If, by the way, if, started, your name, if your name is Zeke Bratkowski, you're immediately like a backup quality player. Well, but hold on. So Brown started all but one game, and then Bratkowski would come in and finish the games. Now, Brown had seven touchdowns, 11 interceptions, and a 40% completion percentage. So you're going to ask me, why was he starting? Why didn't they just give it to Zeke? Well, Zeke had six touchdowns and 21 interceptions. The closer. So why was he playing at all? 
And the crazy part of all this is that the Browns were actually 5-3-1, and one, half a game behind the Colts the and Bears. a half game ahead of the Packers. So this QB uh, platoon was working. And then the, Bra- the Bears lost 41-13 uh, to 13 to the Packers. And then facing a must-win the next week in Cleveland, they lost 42 to nothing as their quarterbacks combined for seven interceptions. Mm. And then the final week of the season, they lost 36 to nothing. So they went from half a game out of the title to being outscored 119 to 13, which is really amazing. Yeah. Um, so now, as we said, the Browns, the best team, but uh, you know because of those close losses, they do not win the division, and there's no playoffs. And so the Eagles go into the championship as a heavy favorite against the Packers. The Packers settle for two field goals from Paul Horning in the first half, take a six nothing lead. The Eagles score twice in the second quarter to take a 10-6 lead. In the fourth, Bart Starr, four touchdowns the whole regular season, throws a touchdown pass to give the Packers a 13-6 lead. But then the Eagles march down, score the winning touchdown, 17-13. Norm Van Brocklin's fifth game-winning drive of the season. What, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Because we did a lot of re- you did a lot of the stats research for this. Yeah. Did you make that stat up yourself, or did you see that somewhere, that he had five game-winning drives on the year? No, that no, I didn't make that up. That's a, that's a stat profile. Okay, fine. Because I would be very impressed if you if you just like, hey, that's uh, he had a lot. Yeah. yeah and the Eagles have become the first team ever to beat a uh, Vince Lombardi team, the only team ever to beat a Vince Lombardi team in a championship game. The Eagles were considered a very mediocre champion. Even then, it was it was sort of widely acknowledged that like, okay, the Colts had a down year, the Packers were a pretty good team, and the Browns were probably the best team. Because yeah. if you look, first of all, this whole game is available on YouTube if you want to watch it. The 1960 championship game, which I, I did. I, I like watched the first beginning and then I watched the fourth quarter. Well, hell, but, so let me ask you a question because this I couldn't find on Pro Football Reference and I didn't watch. The yeah, game. when did they? When did um, Bart's? When did Van Brocklin throw that game winning touchdown to win the game? How many minutes were left? I want to say like eight minutes left, but I'm not. I'm oh, not. Oh, so I, I'm, I, right. It might have been a lot less. I mean, the, the, okay. it's also there's no clock on the scoreboard That's because true. it's yeah. 1960. So you have no idea how much time. Because like the Packers are driving and I'm like, ooh, I, even though I know they lose, I'm like, ooh, this is getting exciting. And then they complete the ball in the middle of the field a couple times, but then call timeout. And then they're, like, clearly out of timeouts at a certain point. Yeah. And so they complete the ball down, like, inside the 10-yard line, and they're running, and then just the game is over. Like, they yeah. threw the ball in bounds with not nearly enough time left. But the, the, So it was really acknowledged then that, like, the Eagles were really a crappy champion. It would be funny if, like, because it was also sort of, a, like, what if the 2018 Eagles end up being a bad champion? Like, I like starting here where the Eagles are winning, and then we're up to a season in real life where the Eagles won. And they were like, the Eagles won this time with a backup quarterback. I don't think they're going to be viewed as a bad champion, the 2018 Eagles. But the 1960 Eagles were definitely considered like, well, we won. Like, you know, even then it was very uh, clear that this was sort of like a mediocre team. And we'll get to that in a second. What if there was playoffs back then? Would they have still won? Yeah, I think. um, So Chuck Benarek is is like their is their star linebacker, the Eagles, right? Yeah. And so midway through the season. Bednarik, um, like uh, their starting guard goes down, and Bednarik's like, "All right, you're you're." He was thirty four, thirty five. He's like, "You're going to play both ways, Bednarik." So he literally plays the entire game, and it was a little after people were doing like back in the day, everyone was doing that. But by nineteen sixty, it was you, people were a little more specialized. You might be a kicker or a punter, but you weren't playing every single snap because the it was over. You know, players were much better at this point, and they were big, so you could really get her. Anyway, Bednarik's a monster. There's this crazy story where he lays out in an Eagles-Giants game, I guess it was, he lays out Frank Gifford, the future Monday Night Football announcer and husband-slash-ex-husband of uh, Hoda's uh, assistant on the uh, NBC show. So so he lays him out, and they, like, cart him off like nobody's ever seen before. And then they go into the locker room after the game, and in the in the locker room, there is a guy with a sheet over it. 
And they're like, oh, my God, Chuck Bednarik actually murdered Frank Gifford. His hit was so hard. And then they realized, like, it was a fan in the first row had a heart attack. And they just, like, brought him to the doctor in the locker room. But he was dead. But they literally all thought it was when they walked in the locker room, they thought, like, Frank Gifford was dead in the locker room. Uh, but, yeah, no, Chuck Bednarik was, like, an like. I mean, I'm sure now he would he would like not be able to play high school football, but back then he was like an actual murderer, Chuck Bennett. Like you, you like literally ran away from him. So who should have been? Uh, I said that I gave the uh, AFL MVP to a wide receiver. Who should have been the NFL MVP? In actual fact, Norm Van Brocklin, who, as I said, led the Eagles on that uh, championship-winning drive in the fourth quarter of the NFL championship. He was a contestant MVP across all four MVP award organizations at the time. But to me, I have Milt Plum. His ball protection, making him the most valuable quarterback in the league that year. Milt Plum had 23 touchdowns and only six turnovers. By comparison, Van Brocklin was 24 to 21. Unitas was 25 to 28. Unitas led the league in yards, touchdowns, completions, attempts, and had just one fewer. But he had just one fewer interception than Eddie LeBaron for the Cowboys. Uh, Milt Plum led the league in rating by a ridiculous amount. His rating was 110.4. Van Brocklin was second at 86.5, and no one else was above the 70s. Uh, 1960 is also a great year for us to start. It's the first year that approximate value is available. Uh, in 1960, uh, you look at the approximate value, that's almost a perfect replacement for my MVP ballot. Jim Brown first, Jerry Norton second. Who's Jerry Norton? Led the league of 10 interceptions, also led the league in punting with 45.6 wow. yards per punt. He also played running back, and he was a kick returner and a punt returner. Uh, next come uh, John David Crow, Bobby Mitchell, uh, Raymond Barry, and then Norm Van Brocklin, and then Paul Horning and United Symbol Plum. So um, those five comebacks are why Van Brocklin won the award. And um, but I'm going to say that while while you know while Van Brocklin won the championship, while Mill Plum was great with the stats, to me it was a running game in the NFL that year, and the best player in the world was Jim Brown, and so Jim Brown should have been the MVP. So the only remaining question we have is we have the Philadelphia Eagles winning because, as we said, the Browns, the best team, didn't even get a chance because there was no playoffs. What if there had been a Super Bowl? So the way we're going to do it is we're going to put four playoff teams in both the AFL and the NFL. Mm. And then we're going to use a modern format where the one plays the four, the two plays the three, and let's see what happens. Now, is this like Super Bowl negative seven? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so in the NFL, the number two seed Packers would have almost certainly lost to the number three seed Browns. Now, who gets the four seed? The 49ers and Lions both finished at seven and five. They split their games. They have identical records against the division, which is also against common opponents. is the same thing that year. The tiebreaker, assuming we're transporting modern rules to 1960, would be strength of victory. So I had to go through this and check. Detroit would have made the playoffs ahead of San Francisco because their seventh victory was against the eight-win Packers, while the 49ers' seventh victory was against the four-win, one-tie Rams. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The Eagles would have beaten either one of those teams. They had already beaten Detroit 28-10 earlier. The Eagles and Browns would have met in the real NFL championship, and I would say that the Browns probably would have won. So who would the Browns have played in that inaugural minus-seven Super Bowl? In the AFL, the tiebreaker for the one seed would have come down to point differential because everyone played everyone twice, so there's absolutely no way to do any schedule-related tiebreakers. The Oilers, as the one seed, would have beaten the Titan Jets for the third time that season. The Texans would have beaten uh, L.A. on the road. With Houston facing Dallas in an all-Texas AFL championship, I like the team with the great offense and the great defense over the one-dimensional Chargers. Thus, in our inaugural Super Bowl minus seven, I have the Cleveland Browns against the Dallas Texans, neither of whom even got to participate in the playoffs in 1960 in real life. Considering the fact that most of the AFL players in 1960 were either undrafted in the NFL or were back in the NFL, back of the bench, I say the Browns would have won that game by 40. And the best part of this exercise is it takes away the Eagles' only NFL championship prior to this. Past yeah, and let's take away their 2017 title now. Also, Patriots should have won. The Eagles cheated. Yeah. So the the the, the, the Texans, by the way, uh, even though they dominate that they dominate they win uh, they dominate the AFL, and the Cowboys stink, the uh, you know the the Hunt family could not take competing uh, in one in one uh, city with an NFL team, 
And so they actually uh, go ahead and move to Kansas City the next year to become the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. Teams were really trying. They didn't think that there was a market to have two, and there probably wasn't, to have two teams in a city, right? Dallas splits up. The L.A. Uh, Chargers move immediately to San Diego. Yeah. And I think only only the Rams are there at that point, right? Because Oakland is – the Raiders are in Oakland. And, and as we said, Chicago loses their second team. Uh, and so you have New York with two teams, but and that would become, uh, you know, if we ever do a – uh, a merger episode we have uh, uh you know th- there's a really big uh, there's an interesting solution to how the titans then jets and giants sort of uh end up coexisting uh anyway aftermath of the 1960 season so norm van brocklin who if you uh aren't aware still has the record for passing yards in a game with 554 which he did way back in 1951 it's kind of insane that that record has held that long tom brady's almost broken it in the last two super bowls just alone um so after after winning the title Van Brocklin retired. Now, he had already retired in 58 because he hated playing for the Rams. So the Rams agreed to trade him to Philly. And the coach there, Buck Shaw, lets Van Brocklin run the show. He's essentially a player coach. He's calling his own plays, Van Brocklin. He, he is essentially the offensive coordinator. Uh, so then after 1960, he wants to retire and be the coach for the Eagles. But they, he thought they let him coach because Shaw is retiring. They don't. So then he goes to your expansion Vikings. we got to get in as many Vikings mentions as possible. Uh, and he totally flops there for a bunch of years, then goes to the relatively new Atlanta Falcons franchise and has very little success with either team. Really was not a great coach for uh, in either scenario. And there isn't really a, a rich history nowadays of, uh, of like, excellent co- you know, quarterbacks becoming good coaches. Uh, anyway, you have anything else on 1960? Yeah, the last thing I'm going to say, it's a visual medium, so it's not very helpful, but I, I'll, I'll G-chat to you, and you try and describe it. The Cardinals, in their first year moving to St. Louis, their logo was phenomenal that year. Would you like yeah, to describe put, what their logo looks like? Yeah, I don't. it's like a Cardinal running with the football under a gateway arch. It's amazing. I, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, but it's, I, it's, a mus- I, it's, it's a muscular football player with the head, of the, the head that's still their logo to this day, actually. Yeah, it's probably like John David Crow just with a Cardinal's <laughs> upper body. Like, he's jacked. It's amazing. Yeah. And then the only logo I like even more than that, because this isn't even a logo, is the 49ers logo that year. Would you like to describe that? Well, you got to send it to me. I did. Okay, fine. So in the, it's like a, it's like a western, an old western guy who's shooting gun, which has like a poofy cloud of dust. His cowboy hat has fallen off. He's wearing red checkered pants. What is in his left hand? Is it a grenade? No, it's another gun. Oh, it's second gun, but it's upside yeah. down. It's an upside down gun. He looks uh, like he's mentally disturbed. Could you imagine, like in San Francisco now, if you had like uh, this logo? I feel like. I mean, I guess it's not like especially racist. It's just the guy who loves guns, who's got two guns and a cowboy's hat. Yeah, uh, I was, guess so. Was San Francisco considered like the I get the Wild West still in 1960? I don't know. I guess so. Yeah, but oh, yeah, so it, doesn't say, it doesn't say a team name anywhere. It doesn't. No, no. Anything. There's no reason to like if I, like I didn't even realize you sent it because yeah, there's no reason to know that this is the 49ers. Like maybe yeah. there's 49 boxes on his checkered pants. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the logos were great. We could put them on. One other random fact I, I realized when watching the 1960 championship game on YouTube, when the announcers would would say like, "All right, he's uh, like snapping the ball for a kick," they would call it a pass. Like the center passes the ball to the holder, who then holds it for the kicker. So I just taught my son about snaps now. yesterday, by the way. I, so my dad, who was uh, you know, a pretty serious football player in his youth, when he no, taught how, me how to play knew, fo- Nobody knew that. Yeah. When he would play football, when he taught me how to play football, he would, like, when I would be the center, he would be the quarterback, and he would slap my ass so hard with the back of his hands to, like, to snap the ball to him. And I would, like, fall down giggling every single time because when you're a kid, that's, like, the funniest thing in the world. 
So mm-hmm. I just taught it to my son uh, this week, and I and I pe- and I paid it forward, and I uh, taught my son how to snap the ball, and he could not stop laughing at me, uh, you know, slapping his tushy. Is uh... would you let your son play uh, organized tackle football? No, tackle football, no. At this age, Never. for sure not. No. Is he an athlete? Uh, I don't think you're gonna have to worry about it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> if he exhibited like tremendous talent as like a flag football player. Then you know we can discuss it as he gets into his teen years, but uh, okay, probably almost certainly not. not. Yeah, if he's good, if he was hypothetically good enough for it to matter, then he'd be good enough in other sports also. Yeah. So. Um, all right. So just to give some credit, where credits do some references for this podcast, we did some research. Obviously, footballreference.com was invaluable. But uh, Ed Groover's book, The American Football League: A Year by Year History, 1960-1969, was really good. Uh, remember, the AFL.com has some really good stories. Uh, Smithsonian Magazine with uh, with that anecdote in there. If you want to hear more of this, let us know. And if you never want to hear this again, then this could be a one-and-done thing. I think this was fun. I had a good time here. Yeah, it's fun for us. But uh, aren't you the one who said a couple weeks ago on the podcast that, uh, you know, if, if you try and tell your grandkids about sports from uh, back in your day, how are they? Yeah, but think of, it, think of it like Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Like, I don't care about, like, the Incas or the Mayas. But, like, if he tells it in, like, a narrative, like, you know, series, like, then maybe it's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he talks about the Incas and the Mayas, but I think yeah. it goes a little old, older school. Um, All right. Are we going to discuss any personal anecdotes or we'll say? No, not on this show. This is a standalone episode. People are going to be listening to this 50 years from now when they there's no more tackle football. And they're like, oh, I want to hear about uh, football. In, listen, in, a in 2060, year. people are going to want to find like, where can I find a 100 year old dis- uh, description of the inaugural season of the AFL? So, right. I do think we picked the right year. I think we definitely picked a smart year to start 1960 because everything too old. You wanted to find a year without the Vikings. So I couldn't talk about the Vikings. So. Yeah. Well, right. If we do another year in 1961. So I guess the options are never doing this again doing literally yeah. every year or we could do chunks like 1961 to 19 you know the the, the rest of the pre-era uh you know before the super bowls and then the then the super bowls into the mergers and then who knows and once we get to the more modern years maybe it's more interesting i don't know let us know what you think in the can right. i tell you an embarrassing story that actually has nothing to do with this so yeah. you know you ever watch a youtube video and um and at the end like the youtube person's like let us know what you think in the comments or like if you like this give it a thumb up Right? Okay. You kids never watch. You, oh, you don't let them watch anything, right? So you don't even know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. So anyway, so there was a YouTube video. My son loves watching, like, how do they make, you know, steel. I don't know, like, anything, how do they make? He loves that stuff. So he, so there was a person at the end, they're like, if you like this, uh, you know, give us a thumbs up. And then I was, like, watching. He was watching on my laptop, on my bed. And, like, he, like, like I'm looking at him with the corner of my eye, and he sticks his thumb up. Oh. Like, gives the, gives the. He gives the lady on the screen a thumbs up. That's cute. It's cute, but maybe maybe he could be an NFL player. Like maybe it won't won't matter if he <laughs> uh, not a lot of big loss if there. he takes a few hits. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with something else. Bye. Cruising to El Paso, can a heavy load? Bobby for the death for your sins. And a cop shoots a kid on a hot summer morn. Bobby for the death for your sins.
That's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.